you know, we got we got to have a vision. The vision is of Tov. Uh, we want Tov people, the good and beautiful Tov life is a life that looks like Jesus and that is rooted in character. And when we are transformed in character to be Tov people, we do Tov things. That was Scott McKnight, and this is the Things Above podcast. Well, today's guest for a Things Above conversation is Dr. Scott McKnight. Scott McKnight is the Julius R. Manti Professor of New Testament at Northern Seminary and a recognized authority on the New Testament, early Christianity, and the historical Jesus. He's a highly prolific author. I mean, my goodness, so many books, including award-winning books like The Jesus Creed, King Jesus Gospel, Kingdom Conspiracy, just to name a couple. So there's so many. He blogs at ChristianityToday.com. He and his wife, Chris, live in the northwest suburbs of Chicago, where they enjoy long walks, gardening, and cooking. I like those three. So, Scott, welcome to the Things Above podcast. Uh, Jim, it's great to be with you and to be with your podcast. I hear lots of good things about it. Uh, well, I'm loving doing it, and I'm just so excited to have you. You and I, we've been friends now for several years, and yeah. we've worked together, and man, I've learned so much uh, from you, from your books, and from your your in-person lectures, and so it's just a, a joy to have you on the podcast. You've also been a part of the Apprentice Gathering, and you're going to be in, a part of the Apprentice Gathering again this September, three-day conference designed for individuals longing to continue their personal journey into Christ-likeness. And I'm just, I'm so excited. People are signing up. We've had a lot of people sign up in the last month, which is, a, I think, an indication that people are ready to get back in person. And uh, it's going to be great. Scott's going to be speaking at this, Susie Larson, Emily Freeman, Juanita Rasmus, me, and um, really excited. But Scott, your new book, let's talk about this book. I want to jump right in. It's called A Church Called Tove, and the subtitle is Forming a Goodness Culture That Resists Abuses of Power and Promotes Healing. And wow, I mean, this book, I loved it so much. It's written by you and your daughter, right? That's right. That's your daughter. Right. And, and I'm going to, am I going to say Laura Berenger? Am I saying Berenger? Okay. Didn't know yes. if I had that pronunciation, but um, so you have worked with your daughter as I'm working with my son, which is cool. Uh, and right. a great forward by our mutual friend, Tish Harrison Warren. So she was on the podcast earlier this year. Okay, so Scott, here we go. Ready for your questions? It's time. Yes, I ask I'm every ready. guest, and I'm uh, always good to be with you because I love those books you've written for oh, spiritual thanks. formation because I think they tie Dallas Willard to the church in a tight fashion, and I mm. I just really like that. Appreciate. Well, I will take that so, compliment. Thank you. Well, so Scott, I ask every guest on the on this podcast the same question: Why did you and Laura? But why did you write this book? Um, the short answer is because Laura was a pest about writing it. She pushed and pushed and wouldn't give up because I had told the publisher no. Um, when I was asked to, to write a book about Willow Creek, I said, no, I'm not a church historian. They're not going to let me have access to the records. And I don't do that sort of thing. But it, it just so happened that I blogged a bit, a bit about this and people were 
interested in what I had to say. And I was interested in getting beyond the expose of the churches like Willow Creek, Harvest, the Catholic churches, the Southern Baptists, you know, you name it. It's just Hillsong now. Mm-hmm. I, I didn't I didn't want to talk about that stuff not much. I mean, those things are important, but I wanted to say, what can we do so that this doesn't happen? I, you know, I'd like to say it doesn't happen again, but that's naive, probably utopian, so that we can build cultures that don't allow abusive patterns to become established in its leaders. That I, I wanted to explore that idea. So Laura and I began to work on these topics, culture, how cultures are formed in churches. And um, we landed on the word tov, the Hebrew word for good or goodness, and said, this is a way of capturing the message of what churches need. You know, and I often said they need pastors like Mr. Rogers. <laughs> um, yeah. Because everybody admits he was a good guy. He was tov. And we need we need people like that in churches. We're too obsessed with success measured by numbers and by money, by uh, buildings, and not enough by character uh, that will turn people like Dallas Willard and yourself into leaders rather than uh, charismatic figures that can draw a big crowd. And I'm not saying mm-hmm. you can't draw a big crowd. I know you can. Right, right, right. Okay, so for some listeners who maybe aren't aware, uh, Willow Creek, a, a very large megachurch, sort of the leading megachurch in American church history, I would say in the last 50 years for sure. Um, but their leader, um, their pastor, senior pastor, Bill Hybels, uh, had sort of a fall from grace. And, and um, well, I'll let you tell it because you're the expert on what happened. I've, I've read things, but maybe just let the listeners know what happened at Willow because that was a kind of spurned, spawned the book, I think. Yeah, it um, it spawned, uh, it spurred uh, my daughter and her husband and Chris, my wife and me into conversations about what happened. Mm -hmm. Um, A few women came forward with allegations. They had actually been working behind the scenes with Willow's leadership and elders and even Bill Hybels for four years without any progress at all. So it came forward in a public newspaper, uh, not a, not a, not just public, but the Chicago Tribune, which is big time. And all of a sudden, Willow was in the news with very serious allegations by women against Bill Hybels. And eventually there was even a bigger story published in the New York Times by the time that was over, uh, two and a half years ago, whatever. It was... Um, clear to everybody that there was guilt and the church needed to think about what to do. And uh, so those allegations just snowballed into what we would now call church too. And we heard about other stories and we wanted to respond to that situation. Yeah. Because as you mentioned, it's, it's unfortunately all too common. We see some of this. And I, one of the things I love about the book you and Laura done here is you, you, well, the first part of the book examines toxic cultures and toxic churches, and it was hard to read, I'll be honest, because there was like, you guys were telling true stories. You weren't just sort of speculating with little fictional, you know, anecdotes or case studies. It was like, this is real. But then, of course, the second part, which was my favorite, 
second part of the book is where you begin to look at the characteristics of churches that have a deeply good or tove culture. But I, we should probably just follow what the book does and and just begin with what happens in these churches where it becomes a, a toxic kind of culture. What I mean, you, you list several of the ingredients and steps and and I've done a fantastic job of outlining that, but share with listeners like what you have learned about the characteristics of those cultures that are not Tove, but are quite the opposite. Yeah, we call them toxic cultures. It yeah. was hard enough to get the publisher to let us use one Hebrew word. The other Hebrew word is ra, evil. And uh, so we use the word toxic. Okay. Uh, Jim, what we discovered, uh, we found seven characteristics of toxic church cultures that are symptomized, uh, I think detectable most easily in narcissism, which is grandiosity, selfishness, extreme sensitivity to any kind of criticism, a profound lack of empathy for other people, for hurting people, for people in general, other than what fits with the agenda of the leader. And we also found that that such leaders and such churches used power, uh, used fear to increase their power. So we call it a power through fear culture. And there's just a lot of insider, inside circle, um, top executive team that make the decisions that nobody can challenge. You can challenge as long as you agree, you know, that sort of thing. And um, we, we started exploring this and we found that institution creep where the institution becomes more important than people, where they're willing to use false narratives, spin the story, gaslight uh, the people with, who are critics, silence the critics, pay them off. Uh, oh, do we have stories about this? And then uh, we found loyalty was a really big um, value or virtue. Uh, you know, I think loyalty is a virtue, but when it's loyalty to an institution that is narcissistic and powerful and is insensitive to the ways of Christ and serving others, then it's no longer loyalty to truth. Uh, it's just loyalty to the institution and to the power. And we found, uh, and this, I, I've been talking to some journalists lately, there's, there's a, a movement of interest in celebrity pastors and celebrity cultures. It's like the church has decided to imitate Hollywood and make superstars and celebrities out of their pastors. In fact, have pastors who are celebrities rather than who are known for their character. And then uh, we found that almost all of these narcissistic type church cultures were obsessed with leadership uh, rather than, let's say, uh, serving Christ or being like Christ. So yes, servant leadership gets, gets the language, but the ultimate game is leadership cultures that are formed on the basis of business models rather than careful study of the way of Christ in the Gospels and the way Christ is absorbed by the apostles and taught, say, in Philippians chapter 2, where Christ leaves everything in order to become a slave even to the point of death. And it is only through that death and uh, utter service, slavery is the word he uses, that, that he is exalted and it becomes the paradigm for Christian leadership. And um, we found this to be the case. And Jim, you, you said it, these, 
that part of the book was not fun to write. Uh, and none of that, we had way too many stories of these sorts of things. It was just piling up um, and it was not fun. And we wanted, I wanted to get out of it. In fact, a, an original version had a little bit of, of the toxic and then more about the positive thing in the chapter, but it went all the way through the book. And our editor suggested putting all the toxic stuff or most of it up front. Mm-hmm. And then so the book, and you, you just said it, you know, you, the, the first half or the first third was third, hard to yeah. read. And then the rest of it was so much more redemptive and hopeful. And that that's exactly uh, how our editor suggested it. Was, Way to go, editor. Sometimes yeah, those editors yeah, are right on the money. Oh, yeah, this guy was good, man. Yeah. Well, I, yeah. And and it was, it was, I think it was just the perfect amount because it was enough to get a feel for like the reality that this is the situation and it, it's all too common. And we've seen it from, I mean, back way back with some of the folks or, I mean, sort of Jim Baker and Jimmy Swagger. And we, I mean, this is not new. We've seen yes. celebrity guys, typically guys rise to this power and fame. And then this usually a crashing fall. Um, and, and, but, you know, I thought what you did in that first third of the book was when you named what happens within the culture, that, that to me was, was really fascinating because it felt like, like there's a, just a common playbook, right? That you, the way that it happens, the, the, the way the inner core of leadership reacts and how they, um, you know, blame the victims, protect the guilty, silence the wounded, avoid accountability. I mean, that's the playbook. Let me read a sentence, Scott, from the, I just love this sentence. You write, this is a book about defending the redemptive value of the church while at the same time accepting the truth that broken and fallen people within the church, including pastors and other leaders, will sin sometimes in shameful and damaging ways. What I love about that sentence is you're saying this is ultimately a book about the redemptive value of the church. Like you, It's clear that you love the church. I love the church. Yeah. And that's, that's why I think we can be critical, right? Because we love it so much. I think, that, yeah, as you mentioned with Hillsong, and, you know, Rabbi Zach- Zacharias, I mean, it's just, I- I'm starting to just get so discouraged. But w- what I felt in reading your book was you you just sort of diagnosed this, this situation. And hopefully people will look at it and go, guys, this is happening to us. We need to stop this. Like, yeah. if we see some of these these characteristics that you name in the first part of the book. Yeah, you know, um, you're, you're fortunate to have worked with people like Richard Foster and Dallas Willard. Because, you know, I, I'm thinking of Dallas lately. He was so much into character. Mm-hmm. You meet Dallas and you go, oh, that's someone I want to be like. You meet some of these people and you say, I want to preach like that. Or mm. I want a church that works like that. Dallas's character carries the day character you know who is it peter drucker uh says uh culture eats strategy for breakfast Mm. i i would back that up character eats culture and Mm. dallas had the had the character and you know i i want to be i remember when chris met him she said i want i i want a grandpa like that (laughs) you know that it's it's the person yeah. And we don't value this enough in the church uh, because our role models have been measured by numbered success. 
and numbers of success. And we have to, we have to shift that culture. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, you know, I speak to pastors a fair amount. I'm, I, I actually pray that God will give me opportunities and God opens doors. But one thing I always say to pastors is don't measure the success of your church on the ABCs of attendance, building, and cash. Measure it on the D, which is discipleship, which is your discipleship to Jesus and how you're leading others into discipleship. And but those ABCs, man, are real because we do. We, we look at a church and say, what's your attendance? What's your building like? How much money do you have? And I don't know, where, where did we get that as our measuring stick? Where, how did that become more important than the D? So a pet, a, attendance, building, and cash. The ABCs. And the yeah. is okay, I've heard of the three Bs. Uh, butts in pew, bills in plate, and baptisms in the, in the tank. That must be a Baptist version. Of yeah, that's a Baptist thing. No, that's right. The Methodists baptized early enough not to worry about. That's it. right. Um, the um, I, you know I don't I don't know the answer to that other than it has it, ha, it is eating steroids in the second half of the 20th century, maybe the last third of the 20th century with the megachurch movement that began to uh, promote itself as models for other churches to follow. And people just flowed into North Point and Saddleback and Willow Creek, and probably now Craig Rochelle's church. And they would say, how are you doing it? We're gonna do what you're doing. And you know, what, what were they measuring? I mean, I've, I've been to Saddleback. I've been to all three of these churches. I haven't been to Rochelle's church, but their buildings are really impressive. You go into them, you go, wow, this is something yeah. else. They got it something going on here well they do they do have things going on a lot of good things but we're all of a sudden we're impressed by that when i think of my wonderful student steve talley who's out in western southwestern kansas who's got a church of 75 people in a small town he's he's not going to do that they're not going to have a big screen up front but you know he loves his people he loves the lord he teaches them the Bible, and he wants those farmers, people in those communities to walk in the way of Christ. And that is what pastoring is all about. That is what I think we have to focus on. We can only have monster churches in monster communities. Mm -hmm. um, that's not, you know, the average church in the United States, I think, is 72 people. Right. There we go. Right. That's, yeah. that's what we need to talk about right there. Yeah. Yeah, what's success? Right. What's success for a church of seventy-two people? You know, loving mm -hmm. your your family, uh, walking with the Lord in your work, doing the right things at the right time, serving your fellow humans, being a good citizen. Those are those are the things we need to focus on. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, Scott, you're a New Testament expert, and. Uh, you know, that, that phenomenon that we saw, I think it's in Corinthians, right? When Paul talks about, I'm for Paul, I'm for Apollos, I'm for Cephas, whatever. I mean, what is it within humans? What is it within us that is drawn to, like, oh, you know, Paul's my guy, or, you know, he, he was the, Peter's, he was with Jesus, he's my guy. Apollos is a great speaker, I want to. Um, what is it about us that, that in some ways elevates people um, beyond just being what they're called to be? Well, that's that's a good question. A personality cults. Oh, mm -hmm. um, 
I, I don't know that I have an answer other than uh, we long, we have a longing for messianic figures in our life who can build us up, enhance our status and reputation, give us meaning in life and uh, dispel the enemies. And, and American evangelicals, especially, you know, you don't, we don't find this other than Adam Hamilton. And I don't think he's a, I guess he's a celebrity at some level, but he's just an anomaly um, in mainline churches. We don't have it as much that way. It's, yeah. it, there's something about evangelicals that are looking for a hero, looking for a celebrity. Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe it's the populist mentality that they want a messianic savior who will point the way for them. Uh, but well, we have it. And it is so tribal. Uh, Sky Jathani did this study not too long ago, maybe within the last 10 years, in which he discovered that um, the evangelical church had stopped being denominational. And the uh, this is a fascinating study. Is the it was replaced with personality cults. Mm-hmm. So some people followed Rick Warren, some people followed Bill Hybels, some people followed Andy Stanley, some people followed Tim Keller, and some people followed Mark Driscoll, some people followed Rob Bell and Brian McLaren. And it was almost like all these people gathered around uh, an individual character. And it is so clear that this is characteristic of populist evangelicalism that you have to say there's something rotten in the core in a desire for a hero. And I don't know what to tell you. I think mm-hmm. it's just, no, so I think you're mind. on it. Even in the example of the I'm for Paul, I'm for Apollos. Doesn't, doesn't Paul answer by saying, I, let's see, I planted Apollos water, but Jesus made it grow or God made it grow. I mean, doesn't he sort of deflect it? Am I right? He deflects it to say, look, you guys are doing this. This isn't right because that's that's where you want to push that. And I'll tell you another side story, Scott, that the church that I helped plant 25 years ago, um, Jeff Gannon is the senior pastor and I'm a teaching pastor there even now. Um, But we made a pact early on that if anybody ever came to us and said, boy, you know, I just really love your preaching or, or boy, you know, I'm really drawn to the work you do or you know, that, that we would just stop it right away and we would compliment the other person. And we made a vow and we have stuck to that for 25 years because it will happen. You know, somebody's going to come up and go, well, I like his, but yours is. And, uh, you know, that's that's toxic stuff, right? I mean, that, is, yeah. that builds. And um, so we've tried to model and I and kudos to Jeff because my senior pastor, he's he's just so good. He's, he doesn't have any, any you know, sort of jealousy or threat of any kind. We just really support each other. And it's a beautiful thing, but it's hard work because there's something in people that want to pull you away because they want to be on this team or that. I, I think your answer was spot on. I, I, I dig it. That's great. And Paul, it does say, you know, he kind of says, look, uh, Jim did this and Jeff did that. And Richard did this and Dallas did this. And, you know, God was at work in all of this and used each of these people to do his work and it's God's work, not ours. I mean, it was, yeah. it's that kind of deflection. And it's, you know, it's not like, oh, I'm not so good after all. I mean, some of these people we know are unbelievably talented people, mm-hmm. but we want 
the credit to go where where the spirit is doing the work not it's not us it's god chooses to use human fallen instruments to build his work in this world and we mm-hmm. we want to give credit to the lord amen amen and i think for the people involved you know the 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 pastors themselves i know there's a the challenge on that end is you're you're grateful when people honor your gifts and they're complimentary and they're drawn to the work you've done and and you do want to say oh it's great that god used my book or sermon or talk or whatever to bless you but to avoid that from getting into your soul because it can it yeah. can be pretty bad i mean i've i found myself at times you know when people are complimentary um starting to take it like seriously like that was me and i have to just stop and remind myself and have some you know i have some good friends who keep me accountable to remind me you're you're just a flawed human being and god uses you but don't take that stuff too seriously because i think somewhere along the line some of the people that we've mentioned maybe they they started taking it seriously i don't know they started believing yeah. in their celebrity or feeling entitled because they start doing stuff that you know they had to know was wrong you know i uh, i got an email last night from a student i had years and years ago at trinity this is no way back and he said he thinks that you know i i often say this i don't think mega churches is the problem so much as that attracts mega ego people who then plant themselves and exploit their powers he said i think i think the mega church itself uh, creates uh, the capacity to transform people into narcissistic types well there's something to that and that mm-hmm. is that uh, you know was it Tom, uh, carlisle who said power corrupts but absolute power corrupts absolutely I, I i believe that and i think you start believing um your press releases and mm-hmm. the next thing you know i mean uh we're both watching hemingway One of the great lines, I think, in the second episode was that Hemingway had a hard time being Hemingway. Yeah. I mean, it was, he became a persona. He became this sort of this celebrity figure. And everywhere he went, he had to be Hemingway. Well, when that's, when that starts taking over, um, you're no longer uh, Scott McKnight who is trying to follow Jesus, you're, you're an author who, and people read your books or you're Jim Smith. And you're, you know, you, I've, I've often told people that the two greatest things in my life to keep me grounded are my wife who says, you know, you've, you've read enough. You don't need to read anymore. Or, <laughs> or students who say, you know, I, I now, I'm not bothered by my students using social media in class. Okay. But it's a reminder that I'm not that interesting. And that social media is capturing their attention. I'm thinking, you know, I'm probably a little bit boring right now. I need to sharpen my game. These things and student questions, student disagreements, you know, it's the, it's the student who just starts, who looks at you and says, I don't believe that at all. And I'm thinking, you haven't even studied this stuff. <laughs> and I have my whole life and you're disagreeing with me. These are humiliating reminders yeah that it's not us yeah you no know, god's working in them and they just might know something that we don't and that's good for us 
it is very good. It, <laughs> so Scott, I, I was on a, I was, did a, uh, it was, it was ultimately a, a video series I was invited to, flew to Nashville, did my thing, you know, I got to go to a dressing room and they had my name on the dressing room in this TV studio. And it was like on a star, like it said, it said Jim Smith on this star. And when I was done, I said, Hey, can I, can I keep that? And it was like paper. So the, so the lady there, she goes, yeah, sure. We're just going to throw it away. So I got on the plane. I took it home. I was so high on myself because I thought, man, I just did this TV thing. And, you know, and I, and I was, couldn't wait to come home and show my wife this star. And I walk in the door and I say, Hey, Megan, hey, look at this, man. I got this star. I, did, I had my own little room and makeup and did all this stuff. And she goes, hey, that's great, honey, but we're out of toilet paper. So go to the store. And I, <laughs> As I drove to the store, I thought, you know, that was short lived. My my moment <laughs> Your of feeling is oh, like it's that it comes down to toilet paper. So yeah, yeah I it's the our, these wives can keep us grounded, which is so yeah. good. Well, yeah. Scott, this, the the last two thirds of the book. So let's jump to the good. Well, okay, first of all, just say a little bit about Tov because you know you're a Bible language expert. So it's T T O V is in, in English. But uh, tell 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 our listeners about what tov is in the in the Hebrew. Uh, tov um, is the word for good goodness. Uh, remember that Genesis one starts out every day is tov, and then at the end it's mode tov tov mode. It is uh, very very good. And uh, so I um, I accidentally fell upon this word, Jim. This is interesting. Mm. I said something on my blog early about Willow Creek. And what what had happened? And I said, what we need is more goodness in churches. And the number of people who said, wow, I haven't heard that word goodness in a long time. And I, I thought, that's because we're Protestants. And all we know is that there's none good, no, not one. And uh, it's unfortunate that that's the only thing we think of, the word good. So I, I said, I'm going to look at this word good in the Bible a little bit more intensively. And it is found throughout the Old Testament. Tov is, let's say, uh, God alone is Tov. I mean, in the Bible, you know, he's Tov. No one else is Tov. Everything he does is Tov. His design of the world is Tov. He wants humans to be Tov. He's designed us to be Tov. Creation is Tov. Music is Tov. Uh, our creative arts. A well-written sentence is tov. Uh, the, the right word spoken to the right person at the right time is tov. Some people design their houses in tov. They create a desk that looks like tov. You know, all these things are tov in the Bible. And then tov is, is active. It is not, um, it is not, let's just say, he's a nice person. It is something that we actually do. And I, I often use, you, you probably know the great basketball coach at Virginia. His name is Tony Bennett. I didn't I, know about I him until I read the book. Yeah, that was yeah, a great I, story. He is a Tove man. I mean, he's offered millions of dollars. He says, no, spread it to the rest of the people who work here. I have enough. I mean, there aren't many people who do things like this. But Tove is also something that is a resistor. Tove resists evil. Over and over in the Old Testament, it says, chase or pursue Tov, resist evil. And so Tov is in the New Testament. It is uh, Jesus wants us to do Tov works, good works. 
Um, Paul wants us, he expects us to become people of good works. Tov works, he would have used in Hebrew. And then uh, the fruit of the Spirit is tov. And the word is used quite often in the New Testament. So we are not tov good in ourselves, but God's grace comes to us through the power of the Spirit and remakes us so that we become agents of tov in the world. Hmm. So what happened is we saw seven characteristics of toxic churches. And I said to uh, Laura, my daughter, I said, I have to match these. I have to counter these with seven characteristics of Tov. So we didn't sit down with Tov and say, here are the seven characteristics of Tov. We sat down with seven characteristics of toxic cultures and said, what would the Bible want instead? Mm. And uh, so we, we came up with seven, seven marks, habits of goodness. Yeah, and they are nurturing empathy, nurturing grace, putting people first, telling the truth, nurturing justice, nurture service, and nurture Christ-likeness. I mean, those are all good, right? I mean, those yeah, are you, you can't look at that and say, mm, that's, that's okay. I mean, it, it is goodness, and there's just so much I want to talk about that. I, gotta, I have to talk about, though, um, I had never seen this. It's a quote you have in the epigraph, start of chapter 5, from St. Augustine, who said, the truth is like a lion. You don't have to defend it. Let it loose and it will defend itself. Oh, that's so good. You know, I think that a lot of these things, in the, in, and I'm bridging from the toxic side, but the, the truth does come out, right? I mean, the truth, eventually, you don't have to defend it. It will emerge, right? And, and the same is true with Tove. I mean, I think Tove, goodness, ultimately, you know, I, I've been working the last 18 months. I've been writing uh, what's the fourth book in the Good and Beautiful series called The Good and Beautiful You, subtitles creating the, becoming the person Jesus created you to be. But the thing, Scott, for me was that I also began to discover that our soul is tov, like our soul wants, our soul wants goodness. It wants, we're built, like we're factory built with, made for tov. And so you know, reading your book, as I'm finishing my book, I saw this overlap of, of what's happening in our souls and and why we respond to it like you just can't fight it it's 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 there you know when you when you uh when i was writing about tove i knew that you had written about the good and beautiful life mm -hmm. and i thought you've got you've got it right this is good and beautiful are two translations of the word tove mm. and you're looking for a life that is, let's say, you're trying to find a construct that puts it together in a macroscopic way. And I think the good and beautiful life, that's, I totally agree. That's, that's what it's all about. And over and over, we build these, you know, Dallas talked about the habits of them, of vision. Right. Intention and means, yeah. Intention and Intention means. means, yeah. You know, we got we got to have a vision. The vision is of Tov. Uh, right. We want Tov people, the good and beautiful Tov life, is a life that looks like Jesus and that is rooted in character. And when we are transformed in character to be Tov people, we do Tov things. Yeah. And uh, I mean, I have students uh, from whom I've learned so much, but I, some of them are just mature in Tove 
in their 30s and 40s. And when you ask them a question, their answer is Tove. Right? I have a student named Kelly, Kelly Fabian, Kelly Fabian's story. And she's she's written a couple books. And she, when you ask her a question, I often tell my students, you just watch what happens when someone asks a question of Kelly in class. Everybody listens because she's mature in Tove. She's mm. she's good. Now, if, if I were to say that to her, she'd go, well, you don't know me well enough. Uh, <laughs> that's okay. The humility that yeah. characterizes a Tove person is there too. But we know Tove when we see it. And we see it in her. And there's, you know, I think my pastor's this way too. I just trust his judgment. Uh, the associate pastor, she's she's younger, and but she's growing so much in Tove that we now ask questions and I think she's got it. She's mm. she's mature, she sees it, she sees wisely into the way God has made us life. So I we we need to, you know, if if there's anything we hope for, Laura and I for the book, is that people would focus on a habit of empathy, a habit of grace, of putting people first, of telling the truth, of doing the right thing at the right time, of serving others and being, you know, Christ likeness is the summary of it all. But why can't we focus on those things? And that's what Jim, I know this is what you focus on in your books. You're not trying to build. There's nothing about now. If you go out and do evangelism, eventually you'll build your own church. You're trying to build character through giving people opportunity to open space for the spirit to work in their lives. And it's a character transformation. And that's the kind of people that um, become Tove people and create Tove cultures and Tove cultures help other people become more Tove. Tover. Tover. <laughs> I Tover. Dig it. We want, we I love to it. Be Tover. They... <laughs> Now you mentioned, you know, you just mentioned Kelly, but also um, your associate pastor. But uh, so you write a lot in the book about how a Tove church will empower women. Um, why is that something that even needs to be said? Because I, now of course, in my tradition, I'm United Methodist. That's we long settled that issue. But um, you, you mentioned those several times in the book. Why, why did you want to make that a clear point? Well, it's been part one of my uh, missions for about 25 years in my teaching career to mm. when I first um, when I first began theological studies, I was I was in favor of women's ordination, but I wasn't an advocate. And I said something one time in a class long ago and a student, a, a woman student came up to me and said, we don't need your support. We can handle this on our own. And it kind of scared mm. me. And I went. I went silent on the issue. And I realized later that she was wrong, that people who have platforms and power have to open up space for women. And we have to do it by getting out of the way and by giving women our spaces. I would say the same about African-Americans, Latin Americans, Asian Americans. We need to use our platform uh, make it available to other people to share. So I have I have a mission to uh, in, encourage and to empower women to use their gifts and to do what I can to help them uh, use those gifts. 
So I, I bring this up. It's not uh, an agenda in the book uh, in the sense that it drives it, but it comes up when I think it's appropriate. Yeah, uh, I would like to have brought up racism, et cetera, but you can only do so much in one book. Um, and um, I'm, I believe that a cult, part of the issue is that in toxic cultures, women suffer the most. They're the ones who are abused by power, who are sexually abused and violently abused in physical relationships. And so I'm, we believe that a Tove culture is a culture where women will be treated with dignity and respect and their gifts will be honored and they will flourish. And so I felt like it had to come up. Yeah, I, I'm, I was saying amen left and right. And it is yeah, so true on so many levels. Well, uh, here's a great phrase from the book I love on page 119. I starred it, highlighted it, double highlighted it. But this phrase, the, the, a, a Tove church is a grace-based family of siblings. I love that, a grace-based family of siblings. I just couldn't get that image out of my mind because I thought, what a great way to look at it. Because the church is a family, like we are brothers and sisters in Christ. That that should be the dominant image. But I just love that grace-based family of, of siblings. And then you also write, in a Tove church, leaders maximize their giftedness when they empower others to maximize their own giftedness. I thought, wow, that should be the that should be the standard right there. That is what is your job as a leader? Maximize your giftedness because you've been gifted. Um, but when you empower others to maximize their own giftedness, I mean that's such a far cry from the celebrity pastor, isn't it? I just thought it is. Yeah. <laughs> what, a, what a great I, way to put it. I remember one time I was with a group of seminary students way back when I was a seminary student. Uh, a local pastor had said that he was the only one in the church with the gift of pastoring. And four of my friends were attending the church and they all left the church at that time because they thought, oh, we have the gift of pastoring too. He's not going to acknowledge us at all. And that's that's what we have to be careful of, is a, a, a pastor, a leader in a church, people who have opportunities for leadership should be using their power for others, their power with others rather than their power over others. Mm. And this is what I think uh, the true spiritual gift of pastoring is, is to maximize or to develop the giftedness of other people who are, uh, let's say, to whom you've been given an opportunity to minister. That's what we do. And so I, I feel like I wanted to do that. with I do that with women. I want to use my gifts to help women become what God has called them to be. And, and Jim, there's fighting about this a lot in churches today. The mm -hmm. Piper world is against women preaching or teaching or whatever. Right. And, you know, I'm, I'm willing to uh, fight this out a little bit and to, you know, I don't want to get into point-by-point um, point refutations because that doesn't lead to anything. But I want to tell the story of women like uh, students I have right now, Susie Flory out in Lake Tahoe. I mean, she is a wonderful student and a wonderful person. And she needs opportunities to serve because of her giftedness. I want to do what I can to help people like that. Mm. Yeah, it's wonderful, isn't it? At our church, yeah. um, 
one of the, in our preaching rotation, Jennifer Herndon is her name, and she's a fantastic preacher, and uh, she's a diaconal minister, but she's so good in the pulpit. And at the height of the summer issues with race and stuff, I remember both Jeff and I were like, wow, what do we say on this? Well, it was actually her Sunday, kind of at the peak of that, and she gave the best sermon that was the most Christ-centered sermon on on the issues of race and things. And it was just, and I, and I remember I, I you know, said to her, no, we couldn't have done that. Like you, only you are gifted to have pulled off that sermon because of who she was. And so I'm with you on that. Well, okay. So the last aspect of Tove, of Tove Church is nurturing Christ likeness, which of course is in my field of Christian spiritual formation. And yeah. you use the term Christoformity, which I have already used, Scott. I shamelessly used it. I did quote you. Uh, in a lecture yesterday at a master's class. But I mean, that to me is so important. And I remember reading Eugene Peterson's Working the Angles, which you reference way back in the day. And he was just, he was just, you know, getting right after it saying, pastors, you guys, you're not shopkeepers, you're not business leaders, you are spiritual directors in a congregation. Yeah, yeah. And your job is to pray and read the scriptures. And I, mean, I remember that was so revolutionary. But you, you cite the 1980s and 90s when this sort of craze emerged of, of flipping the pastor to a, to a leader in, in the, with a business model. How did that happen exactly? I mean, what, how did the church become a, a business uh, producing a product as opposed to making people like Christ? Well, let's, let's, um, I, don't, I don't know exactly all the steps. Uh, Eugene Peterson spent a lot of his life griping about this. And uh, I always liked his griping. I just thought. Me too. He's right. I I don't know what's going on and who he has in mind because he never named names. But I think that your ABCs, attendance, building, and cash, um, is at the heart of it. And that is, in the 1980s and then in the 90s, a church evangelicalism started coming of age in a publicity way that people started seeing their name in newspapers and on magazines and then in Washington, D.C. And this publicity fame uh, really got a lot of energy for evangelicalism. And they started measuring, evangelicalism has always measured success by evangelism numbers. So attendance is a big issue. And we started measuring churches uh, that were good by how many people they had. And I, I still hear this with my students. They'll meet a pastor and say, how big is your church? Right. You know, uh, the question should be, how deep are the Christians in your church? Yeah, right. Not how many are there. I mean, how do I know how many is a good number for your church? So I think we start, we, we, we got into what would be successful. And here's where I'm going, is that the role models of success were getting their goods too much from the business world of strategies that worked. And, you know, I'm looking at Bill Hybels. Um, I did not know about Rick Warren at the time, but he was one of them. Uh, Andy Stanley came along a little bit later, but they're all building in the same model. And there's a lot of discussion about uh, how, how things work and, and their best uh, methods. Mm -hmm. And suddenly uh, we were concerned about what people look like. 
and what they look like on the stage and uh, appearance and reputation. And the next thing you know, we're no longer measuring theological soundness or depth of character, but how many people are in the church and how pretty the people are who sing. I mean, it went on and on and it has intoxicated the church and it is coming back to haunt the church these days, I think. Mm -hmm. I, I don't know what's going to happen, but it sure looks like it's a mess to me at times. Yeah, yeah. Well, back to that St. Augustine quote about the lion. Here's, here's, a, here's, a, here's a phrase of absolute truth from page 215 in the book. The church is not a business. It isn't producing a product. And it doesn't gauge success based on measurables. Boom. Mic drop. I mean, that is it. The church is not a business. It isn't producing product. It doesn't gauge success based on measurables. I mean, because you can't measure the growth of someone's soul or in Christ like this, right? You, can't, it, it, you can see characteristics of it. You can see fruit of the Spirit. You can see things emerging. Like you said, you can see tove in people's character. But, but it's, how do you measure it? There isn't a, an instrument to measure it. Um, and I just love that line. I mean, I thought, I don't know if that was yours or Laura's, but that was like knocked it out of the park. I double highlighted that. Well, I'll that take credit well. for it now. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. This She's not here. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's good. Well, Scott, the book is excellent and I'm just well, uh, thanks. thrilled. I'm thrilled. I'm thrilled you're going to be at the Apprentice Gathering this coming September. I'm, I know many people are ready to get back in person. And if you are wanting to go to a, a, a conference that has people who are whose hearts beat for Jesus, do sign up. Go to ApprenticeInstitute.org. Check it out. Scott will be there. I'll be there. Susie, Emily, Juanita Rasmus, Michael Cusick, just a great lineup of people and great workshops. Scott, you are a blessing in my life, brother. I'm so grateful that God got our paths to cross. And thanks for your friendship, your work, and for joining me today on this, uh, on this discussion on the Things About Podcast. Oh, you're a blessing to me too, Jim. And I'm honored to be with you and uh, look forward to being in Wichita. In Wichita in September. Yeah, right. We'll see you. Yeah. We'll see you then. Like right. Thank you. Yeah. yeah. It's Thank good. You. All right. Yeah. I hope you enjoyed this Things Above conversation with Scott McKnight. I know I did. He is a brilliant scholar, and the book is so good. A church called Tove. Go get that book. I hope you join me next week for episode 109. Until then, you can find me on Twitter and Facebook at James Brian Smith. And you can learn more about this podcast at ApprenticeInstitute.org. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with a friend. And you can also subscribe, which means you're going to get them automatically each week. My hope, as always, is that one day if you're asked, what's on your mind? Your answer will be, things above. <laughs>